0: Look over in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. We've been looking at that section in verses 7 all the way down through 21. Some might take that argument all the way down through 5 5. We find ourselves this morning in 1 John 4, verses 13 through 16, as we exposit through the epistle of John. Follow alongside me as I read. The Word of God. It says in 4.13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, we find ourselves in this section right here, declaring, is the Apostle John, why, answering at least the question, why, loving one another is so vital to the life of a believer. Uh, Amongst all the things that he will say in this entire paragraph of 7 through 21, it's really focused on the exhortation to love one another. At least three times here in this immediate section and four times in the whole paragraph, he exhorts us to love one another. Look at verse 7. He says, Beloved, and here's the command, verse 7, Let us love one another. We are commanded right there to love. I say commanded because it's not an option to love one another. It is an imperative command that as believers we are exhorted to love one another. Look down in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Here it is again, and it's a command. Beloved, if God so loved us, here it is, we also ought to love one another. We're commanded again, to love one another. It's put in that language, ought, as an as a inspiration to us, but nevertheless, it's still a command. Verse 12: look there a third time. No one has ever seen God. Then it says, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Again, that exhortation, if we what love one another, and the impetus is we do love one another, and we're exhorted to one another love one another. Glance all the way down in first John chapter four, verse twenty-one, it says, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so you see throughout this section, we are exhorted. To love one another. In fact, if you even back up into chapter 3, do you remember that there? Look at chapter 3 in verse 23. This is his commandment, and it's not plural, it's singular there. But he says two things, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. And so we are commanded to love one another. In fact, in First John, loving one another becomes a visible sign of the assurance of your salvation. And so the question might be asked, how can we love one another? And is it even possible to love one another? And what John does in this text before us is state the definitive reasons and even how believers can love one another. In other words, there's the command, the banner, love one another. And what he's going to do is bolster the argument all the way through and give these definitive reasons why we can love one another. Now, we've looked at the first two reasons in the last two weeks. We said, number one, we're to love one another because, first, God's nature is love. God's nature is love. Look at verse 7. It says, let us love one another. And then it makes this phrase. For love is from God. We noted that he certainly is a God of light in 1 John 1, 5. We know that God in John's gospel, that it says that he's a spirit. And here it says that God is love. And so here is his nature, in his nature, in his essence, in his being, he is love. And so we talk first on the source of love and then the results of love. And so the first, the source of love is we're to love one another. And here's the exhortation. For the simple reason that God is love and that God has loved us. So the reason, the imperative, the impetus is the nature of his love. We look secondly there under that first section on the results of God's love. Look what he said positively in verse 7. He said, whoever loves implication one another, verse 7, has been born of God and knows God. In other words, the one who is putting into practice love for the brethren both knows God and has been born of God. He states it negatively, look at verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so here what John is saying is that we are God's children through faith in Christ and as such we share his very nature to love one another. So he exhorts us to love one another but the first reason is because God's nature is love and as his children we love one another. We left off last week on the second reason why is because of God's gift of love. In other words, we're exhorted to love because of his gift of love that he gave to us. And he gave that gift in verse 9 in the incarnation. Look at verse 9 where it says, In this the love of God was made manifest. And that word just... Simply, as we described, was the idea that the life of Jesus Christ was made manifest at his incarnation. And then we spoke secondly last week, under his gift of love, of the doctrine of the atonement in verse 10. Look at it there, where it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent us his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. And so here were exhorted to love because of his gift of love. And his gift of love was demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ, both in his life, both in his death, in his incarnation, and then in his death on our behalf, to which the implication would be, look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. And so we are to love in response to God's love. As we love one another, it reveals that God himself dwells in us. And so John says, here is the nature of his love. Here is the gift of his love. And then thirdly, here's the other reason why we are to love, is because of God's indwelling spirit abiding in us. Because of his indwelling spirit abiding in us. Let's pick up the text and dive into it. Look at verse 13. John says there, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Now now this theme here, there in verse 13, that He's abiding in us, and this we know because He's given us His Spirit. All the way through this section you see the nature of God abiding in us and him demonstrating that in his spirit that he's given to us. Look back just as we begin in verse 12 when it says there, and I think John's just taking his thought through. He says, no one has ever seen God. He says, but if we love one another, here's the section, God abides in us. In other words, as we love one another, it demonstrates, it proves that God's very nature is abiding in us. Now, he, he launches from that point. Look at all the words for abiding. Verse 13, by this, he says, we know that he, that we abide in him and he in us. Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Look at verse 16. We have come to know and to believe the love of God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. And so the banner over this section is, is God abiding in us through His indwelling Spirit. Now, look more particularly, again, at the text in verse 13. He says, by this we know. And stop there just for a second. He uses that word for know to speak of knowledge by way of experience. In other words, this isn't something that's just factual. You might cram for a test. That's not the word here. He says, we know something. And what we know is not just random information, it's the word that speaks of knowledge by experience and knowledge by observation, if you will. And so what John says here is here's the proof of verse 12 that God abides in us. This is how you can know that God abides in you, is the thought. Now, just for a moment, that's not the first time that John is talking about this knowledge and this observation, and this experience. He's really going all the way through this epistle to give us and to grant us the assurance of salvation. And the reason a man or woman has assurance is because they have this knowledge. In fact, look back at 1 John chapter 2. He spoke of it in a different light there, speaking of this knowledge. Do you remember when he said this in 1 John 2, 3? And by this we know... Again, he's granting assurance to the men and women of faith. By this we know that we have come to know him. The answer would be how, John, verse chapter 2, verse 3, if we keep his commandments. So it's not the person who professes facts about God. It is the person here who knows they are in the faith when they keep the commandments. In fact, glance down at 1 John chapter 2 verse 5. He speaks there in a similar way. He said whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected by this we know that we are in him. And so here you know you're in him if you keep his commandments. You know by way of observation and knowledge that you are in him when you keep his word. Look in your Bible at 1 John chapter 3. Again, this argument is not new to John. Remember, he says in 3.18, he says, little children, let us love. He says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and shall reassure our heart before him. In other words, love not just in word, in talk, but you'd love in deed and truth and by this, we know that we are of him. And so he's building this on the basis of this type of knowledge. Look over at chapter 4, verse 2. Do you remember a few weeks ago? He, he mentions that word again. By this you know. Well, know what? Well, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So he's building that off our knowledge, off our knowledge experience, if you will. Look at 1 John 4, 6. He says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so this has been his argument. Now, glance now back to 4, 13. He says there, By this we know that we abide in him and he and us. He uses that phrase there we abide in him and he in us to describe the best way to say it is the spiritual union that the believer and that God mutually share. Now when you look at that phrase we abide in him and he in us it's put in the present tense. So again he's just saying by this we know that he that we are abiding present tense in him and he in us. In other words The New Testament never goes back to an aisle you walk, a decision you make. Whenever you look at New Testament assurance, it's this present tense of abiding in him and he in us. Now, that phrase there, that we abide in him, is mentioned in verse 12, as we noted, he abides in us. But this phrase has been all over as well. Look back to 1 John chapter 2. And just stay with me here just for a moment because we need to build a, uh, really a platform upon which to, to launch the exhortation to us. And again, I'm talking about abiding now, that ideal of remaining and dwelling in Christ. It's in chapter 2, remember verse 6, where it says, Whoever says that he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner in which he walked. In other words, that man or woman who's professing Christ who's saying that they are in Christ, who says that they remain in Christ or abide in Christ, ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Look down at verse 10 of chapter 2. Whoever loves his brother, here's our word again, abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Glance down at verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him, who is from the beginning, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And then this phrase, the word of God abides in you. In other words, it remains in you is the thought. It's dwelling in you. Glance down at verse 17, that whole section on the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides in you forever. This is all over his theology, isn't it? Look over at verse 24. Here's that exhortation by John. Let what you've heard from the beginning, he says, abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. Look at verse 27. You have anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything and it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so he's saying this, is he not? To the people who went out from the flock, who were no longer with us, who departed from the flock, but he's writing to these readers, to us, and saying, not us, we're in the flock. We're abiding in the flock. We're remaining in the flock. That truth that we heard is abiding in us. In fact, look down at chapter 3 in verse 9. He speaks of it again. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. And here's why. For God's seed abides in him. Look down at chapter 3 verse 24. There again, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Now in verse 12 of chapter 4, there it is, God abides in us. And so you have this reciprocal, if you will, mutual indwelling that we abide in God and that God is abiding in us. Now again, he asked the question here, how do you know that I abide in him? That might be the question that's posed to us this morning. How can I be sure that I'm actually abiding in the person of Christ? Well, look at verse 13 now. He says, by this we know, how, John? That we abide in him and he in us, here it is, because he has given us his Spirit. And so what he's going to do is launch here at this point And talk about the nature of God's indwelling spirit abiding in us as a reason why we are to love one another and to demonstrate that love in the flock. So believers here can love one another because of three declarations that John provides. And I'll spell these out for you. Number one, because he's given us his spirit, verse 13. Number two, because we confess Jesus as the son of God and then number three because we love one another and so here's the banner we're exhorted to love one another here's the reasons why we love one another first God's nature of love secondly God's gift of love and here is the third reason why is because of God's indwelling spirit that abides in us And so here's the exhortation why we're to love one another. Let's look at those together. First, we can abide in him because we've been given the spirit of God. That's what it says. Look down again at verse 13. It says, because he has given us of his spirit. John says, here's how we could know. Here's how we can know we abide in him. Here's how you can know that he abides in us. Here's a reason why you are to love one another is because of the spirit that he has given us. In other words, apart from the gift of God's spirit to us, we could never comprehend the love of God. Apart from the spirit's gift to you, you could never confess Jesus as Lord. Apart from the spirit's gift, you would never be able to ever love one another. And so we can know, we, that he, we can know that he abides in us because we have this present, continuous knowing and abiding that brings this assurance. Now, this phrase here is an interesting one, is that he's given his spirit to us. And I just mentioned two thoughts there. Look, look closely at the language. It says, because he has given us, he doesn't say the Spirit. It's very particular here. He has given us, the text says, of His Spirit. It's, it's an interesting way to look at it. Um, what this means is that you, if you're in Christ, have been given, I would say it this way, a part of the spirits. You have been given, the thought is in the language, a share of the Spirit's. That part, that share, fills, if you will, the whole church, but he has given us of his spirit. It's what we call a partitive in the, in the grammar. And I think he's making a distinction there in John three thirty four, when it's speaking of the person of Jesus Christ, where it says, he whom God has sent, speaking of Christ, utters the word of God, and then it says, for he gives the spirit without measure. And I think there in John 3, 34, he's giving the Spirit without measure, speaking of the person of Christ. But as it relates to us, he has given you a share of the Spirit. He has been given you part of, if you will, the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I both know that other passages in Ephesians says that we're to be filled with his Spirit But I do think it's interesting here when some people want to say, do you have the fullness of the Spirit? And when really the Bible says we've been given a share of the Spirit. Now, look again at the text. I just noticed this for you. want to note this for you. He has given us of His Spirit. It's in what we call the past tense. And what John is describing here then looks to the moment. Be clear on this. At your salvation... When the Spirit of God was given to each believer at regeneration, is the thought. It was given to you, and it has continuous results. Now, follow the argument here. The emphasis on this statement is not so much when you say, what does that mean, he's given me of his Spirit? It's not so much here talking about the subjective witness of the Holy Spirit. We, we would say in other places that the Holy Spirit bears witness when, with our spirit that we're the children of God. That's a subjective assurance. You have that inner witness in your spirit by the Holy Spirit that you're a child of God. I don't think that's what John's talking about here. He, he's emphasizing here the fact that God has in fact given his spirit to you as a believer. He is not so much emphasizing the ongoing subjective role in the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer, but the fact that the Holy Spirit has already been given to you at your salvation. Let me show you some places just to affirm this. Look over in the book of Acts for a moment. And you got to hang with this argument because this is not the exhortation. We're just building the platform, right? But in Acts chapter 2, certainly... Your eyes have seen this many times. Your ears have heard this, that at the preaching there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And then this phrase, And you will receive, what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you come to Christ, when, you're, when you repent of your sins, when God grants you the forgiveness of sins, at that moment in your salvation, you were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We would even call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. In fact, this is so true. Look over in Romans chapter 8, okay? Again, I'm just illustrating here that he's given you of his spirit. Look over at Romans chapter 8. You've probably seen this reference before where it says in Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, in Romans 8.9, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And then this statement Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not, what? Belong to him. So you here in this room at our church have been given at your salvation the spirit of God. So I believe that's an objective statement. You've been given that spirit. If you're still in Romans, glance down in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 16, where it says the spirit himself is bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's subjective. In other words, there's an internal witness. But listen, when you come to Christ, you've been given the Spirit of God. And I just think one of John's arguments here in this book is this. He's battling the Gnostic false teachers who, who were very subjective in their approach and very ethereal, if you will. And he's actually just writing to you to affirm that the Spirit has already been given to you. In fact, look back, you're in that book now, in Romans chapter 5. Go back there, in Romans chapter 5, in verse 5, it couldn't be any clearer that when you've come to Christ, it says hope, 5-5, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through The Holy Spirit who has been, what? Given to us. If you're here in Christ this morning, you abide in Christ. You say, well, why? Because you have been given His Spirit. In other words, let me just get to the point. This is John's argument. How could you not love one another? Here's why you can love one another. Because God is the source of love and you're in Christ You can love one another. You can love one another because God Almighty gave the gift of His Son. His Son came at the incarnation. His Son died in the atonement. Therefore, you ought to love one another because He loved you. And here's His third argument. Because the Holy Spirit resides in you and has been given to you, then how could you not love one another? That's His argument. In fact, I don't think he's beating on you or beating on me. He's saying you do do this. This is who you are. This You do love one another. And the reason you love one another is you abide in God. And God abides in you. And the reason you abide in God and God in you is that he's given you his spirit. Look back over at John for a moment. John 14, go back to the nature of his gospel. Okay, in John 14, and certainly you've seen this one too. Remember there, he's getting ready to prepare for his death. And in John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you, how long? Forever. He says, it's better that I depart. Because if I ascend, I can give you the helper. Verse 17, who is it? Even, he says, the spirit of truth Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But watch this. You know him for he dwells with you and will be what? In you. Listen, the the reason you do love one another is he abides in you and the spirit of God is in you. That is why when a man or woman doesn't, I'll just say it this way, doesn't love the people of God doesn't love the flock of God, doesn't seek to reach out to people in need, you'd wonder if that man or woman is even in Christ. Because once you come to Christ, you now have the person of the Holy Spirit who has already been given to you. Doesn't this make sense? Isn't this not why when you sin, you can grieve the what? The Spirit of God. Why? He's in you. Isn't this make sense that because you've been given the Spirit, when Paul says, do not quench the Spirit of God, that Spirit of God lives within you. That Spirit of God has been given to you at salvation. And so here it is, the Spirit of God who is in you, who produces the love of God towards other believers. And because of God's nature, because of God's gift, And because of God's indwelling spirit, here's the point, you are commanded to love one another. His spirit in you produces the life of love one to another. And I think just the implication here is this. You do love the people of God. You do serve the people of God. And I think he's just trying to encourage us. You say, well, then, Scott, what's the takeaway? This. You have assurance if you see this in operation in your life. You say, but, Scott, I don't really feel it. Well, it doesn't matter what you feel. Do you love the people of God? And I think John's just writing and says, oh, no, he abides in you and you and him. And here's why he's given you a spirit. And as you love one another, you're given and granted the assurance of God that you are the people of God. So listen, believers know that God abides in them because number one, he's been, we have been given His Spirit. But secondly, would you just note this in the text, that we've been, we know that God abides in us because we confess Jesus as the Son of God. We confess Jesus as the Son of God. Go back to 1 John chapter 4. John says there, as he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, we have seen, we have test, we testify that the Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And I think here he's just adding to his argument is that the reason that God indwells in you and you in him, the reason that he's given you of his spirit, is demonstrated, this is the flow, in the confession of the person of Jesus Christ. And and just by way of footnote here, you can't help but see the inner working of the triune God at work here. The Father has sent His Son into the world, also has sent the Spirit of God into your heart as a witness. Now look what John says though, it's interesting. He says in verse 14, and we have seen... Stop there just for a second. I think there is a little bit of a play on words there. You say, well, how so, Scott? Well, he says in 14, we have seen. And I think it's interesting. Remember back in verse 12? Look back up there. No one has ever seen God. But in verse 14, Paul, or excuse me, John, the apostle says, and we have seen. And and I think he's just a little play on words. In other words, the we here is referring to John, referring to his fellow apostles, namely that they were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ and are testifying to you, to us this morning, that which they have seen. Now, look back in 1 John 1. This is not the first time we've seen this this eyewitness testimony. Do you remember when John says in one one that which was from the beginning, we said from all eternity, which then he says, which we've also heard though, which we've also, here it is, seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was made manifest and we have, what? Seen it. What John is saying is we've, looked at it we've seen it and the word there i don't want to get too deep into it it's just a searching gaze john's not talking about a quick glance john is saying we've seen the life we've seen the the miracles we've seen the power over demons we've seen his power over disease we've seen his power over death and again is he not taking on the gnostics who were saying that jesus christ really did not come in the flesh he was just a, a spirit being. He was a phantom, some were saying. And not John, according to these apostles. They're saying we have seen. And I, I'm trying to think of... Remember what John wrote in First 1 John 1.14. You can probably finish the sentence. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have, what? Seen his glory. What John is saying is we were an eyewitness of that. And, and again... This is the testimony of the apostles. You know that, that all the apostles, as one of their credentials to write the scripture and to be named an apostle, they had to be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. John is just saying here that we have seen him, okay? I'm thinking of Paul, even Paul saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, am I not an apostle? He says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord. And you say, well, when did he see the Lord? Well, certainly at his conversion in Acts 9 when Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul in the brilliance of that light and maybe even speaking of the direct revelation in the book of Galatians. So John here is just saying that we've seen Christ. Look over to the right just for a second or to the left. I mean, go back to 2 Peter 1, just a few pages back to your left. 2 Peter chapter 1, this is not John writing or Paul writing where he said, I've seen Jesus our Lord. This is, of course, Peter. But remember this in 2 Peter 1, 16, where he said there, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were, what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. They're referring to the revealing of the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. So look back at the argument here. He says in verse 14, we have seen and we testify, he says, that the father has sent the son into the world. He sent him into the world alienated from God under the control of Satan. The world there would be the world of men in rebellion against God, the world in need of rescue from sin, from Satan. And this is the teaching. He says, we're testifying that God the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Look back at 1 John 4, 9. Isn't this what was stated there? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God has sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is the teaching of John 3, 16. For God so loved the what? The world that He gave His only begotten Son. In fact, He goes on to say there that in John 17, God did not send His Son into the world, to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so John makes it clear here that the Savior has come in the flesh and his death is the propitiation for our sins. You say, "But, but Scott, how does one come into fellowship with Christ? How does one actually abide in Christ? Look back at the text in verse 15. This is for you, for me. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God and the question I would ask you is that your confession this morning that's really the question do you confess that Jesus is the son of God and and John's just this simple but this profound if you do then God abides in you, and you in him, it says at the end of verse 15, you therefore have assurance. In other words, if you say, if I put these pieces together, I can't see the Holy Spirit. You might even say, I can't feel the Holy Spirit. I don't know, maybe you might say, if I can say for sure that I've received the Spirit of God. How can I actually say that I'm saved because He's given us the Spirit? I don't have any criteria. I don't have any physical means to recognize the Spirit of God. In fact, does not Jesus say in John chapter 3 that the Spirit of God is like the wind? It blows here and it blows there and you actually don't even know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. You just kind of see the effect of it. So here what John does is he makes this very tangible. He says to us, it is your belief in the gospel. It is your belief in Jesus as the Son of God that verifies the indwelling Spirit of God in your life, namely that He abides in you. Do you confess that? Do you confess Jesus as the Son of God? Now, as you look there in verse 15, it says whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Obviously, this word for confession, same word used in 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, just means to agree with God about your sin. But here, the confession of Christ obviously implies obedience. He's not, as he's willed in that argument, talking about just lip service, and it's not merely a confession of the fact, but it is a confession of your personal trust in the person of Christ. So you say, how, do, how can I know? Well, this, he's given us his spirit, but then he gives you something even more measurable and objective. Do you confess Jesus as the son of God? Look down at 1 John chapter 5, verse five. Notice all the places he says this. Who is it? that overcomes the world, accepts the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that? Look down at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, 1 John 5, 9, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God. What is it? that he is born concerning his son. Verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. So here's just the confession. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Whoever has the son has what? Life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And so here you're just confessing that he is both fully God, that he is both fully man, and only one who believes the gospel can make this confession. Only, and, and I think he's really pushing towards this, only the Spirit of God can reveal that to you regarding the person of Christ. I mean, remember when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And he said no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It is by this confession that the truth of God is understood. Look back now at 1 John 4, verse 15. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And so only the Spirit of God would reveal that to us. Only the Spirit of God would allow someone to confess Christ. So listen, believers uh, know That God abides in them because not only here, the Spirit has been given to you. You confess Jesus as the Son of God. But here's the third declaration, is that we love one another. That's the third declaration, that we love one another. And this really is his point. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So he says we've come to know. We've come to believe, and the thought there is these are continuing results. We've come to keep knowing. We've come to keep believing that God loves us. And we believe that God is love because we have been given. Here's his point a share of a spirit and his spirit abides in us. So the believer can be assured of God's love, can trust in God's love because you've experienced God's love and you love one another. And so here he brings the argument really full circle. He says, you love God, you love Christ, you do not love the world, you do love the brothers, you do love The sisters. In fact, look at the phrase in verse 16. Right in the middle there, it says, whoever abides in love abides in God. What a great, great statement that he he makes there. The idea is whoever dwells in on that love, whoever remains in that love, is the one who knows God, is the man or woman who loves God and abides in God. In fact, look back at 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John brings it full argument. Here's his third declaration. The the reason you know that he abides in you is because, number one, he's given you of his spirit at salvation. He said, the reason you know that he abides in you is because you confess Jesus Christ as his son. And then he said, thirdly, the reason you know that he abides in you is because you actually do love one another. And so he's just actually here at this third point. And I think this is very important, whoever abides in love, because according to John, it's not enough just to have the facts right about the scripture. There's got to be a proof in the conduct. And here, when you begin to love one another and continue to love one another, the proof, if you will, is in the fruits. And the proof here, according to John, is in the behavior. And the soul-searching proof of one's love for God is obedience to his word and love for God. And that doesn't mean that it's perfect. We're imperfect in that, but that's the passion of our hearts, So we abide in God, God in us, and we know this because he's given us his spirit. We know this because as he's given us his spirit, only one who has his spirit can confess Jesus Christ as the son of God. And then thirdly, he says, because we abide in his love and we love one another. So listen, I don't really feel like I have to exhort you to love one another. I think you do. I think this is the pattern and the principle of a man or a woman of God who's actually abiding in that love. And that man or woman who's actually practicing that love. You can't but help love is the point. And so I could come and say, listen, if you don't love, you don't know the Savior, but I don't think that's John's point. John actually wants to assure you. John actually wants to come so that you would know that you have eternal life. And here's the visible Tangible sign of it is that you abide in God and He abides in you. And you ask the question, how do you know that? Well, number one, He's given you His Spirit. And so His Spirit prompts you to love people. His Spirit gives you a desire to sacrifice on behalf of another. His Spirit prompts you to love people in the body of Christ. And you say, how do I know that Spirit's working in me? You confess the Son. And as you confess the son, it it is axiomatic, if you will, that proves that he's in you. And so you begin to love one another. And so I just want to free you, just love on our people in this body. And in fact, this whole argument is you are going to love because he's the source of love because of the gift of his son and because of the nature of his indwelling presence abiding in us. So continue to walk on these things and to learn from them because we're commanded to love each other. Why don't you bow your head? I'm going to ask the men if they could come forward for communion. Men, if you could come forward at this point and if you could just take a moment there to the men prepare to pass the elements. If you're a guest with us today, you are welcome to partake of communion. If you're in Christ, you need to have a relationship with Christ. If you don't then just let the elements pass. And so we're going to in just a moment. How we'll do communion is pass the bread. And we'll pass the cup. You take the the bread and hold it. And we'll take that together. Then when the cup is passed. Just hold that little cup. And we'll partake of that together. But as you think of your life. As you think of. Loving one another. John actually says you will love. Because if he loves, then that's the source of it. Then you're tied to Christ and so you're going to love another. Because he abides in you and has given you your spirit and you confess Jesus, then you'll continue to abide in him. But maybe the Lord would quicken your heart to, to meet a need somewhere quicken to meet a practical need, and certainly John has talked about that before in this book. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Maybe there's something, maybe there's a ministry that the Lord is prompting you to start, prompting you to be involved in, prompting you to display the love of God either in this flock or outside of this flock. Well, we want to encourage you with that. It's only those men and women who have experienced this love, who know these truths, who will be able to practically abide in that love to people both in the flock and outside. Take a moment. Maybe you've been unloving and you're convicted by Christ and by God and Him sending the Son, then you confess that. Renew your heart towards that.